0: National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at CybersecuritySummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson.
1: Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, And we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. Occasionally, we're also joined by people from around the world, and today's guest is joining us from Germany. We're going to take a look at uh, the nations of Southern Africa for today's show. We'll explore the economic, political, and security situation in a number of countries across that region. With us to discuss this topic is someone who is very familiar with Southern Africa. Colonel Matt Sousa is a foreign area officer in the U.S. Army specializing in sub-Saharan Africa. He served as the Deputy Director of Security Studies at the George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies from 2019 to 2021. Before coming to the Marshall Center, he served as the Senior Defense Official and Defense Attaché in Angola from 2014 to 2019. He has also served as the senior defense official and defense attache responsible for all U.S. military engagement in Senegal, Cape Verde, the Gambia, and Guinea-Bissau from 2009 through 2012. Colonel Soso spent an early earlier tour as the U.S. defense and army attache accredited to both Cameroon and Equatorial Guinea from 2006 to 2009. Matt Sousa was well-suited to these military diplomat assignments because he's also served at West Point as an assistant professor in the Department of Social Sciences, where he taught politics and development of sub-Saharan Africa and also comparative international politics. He has also guest lectured at Harvard University and universities in the Netherlands and Nigeria. Colonel Sosa co-authored the book Oil and Terrorism in the New Gulf, framing U.S. energy and security policy in the Gulf of Guinea. Colonel Matsusa has lived, worked, and traveled in more than 30 African countries, He is fluent in French and Portuguese and conversational in German, Italian, and Spanish. He earned his graduate degree in public administration and international development from Harvard University and his undergraduate degree in human and regional geography from West Point. Additionally, he attended the International Peace Support Operations course in Ghana and the Managing Peace Processes course at the UN's Institute for Conflict Resolution in Northern Ireland. Colonel Matsusa currently serves as the Chief of Staff at the George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies in Garmisch-Partenkirchen, Germany. Colonel Matt Sousa, welcome to National Security This Week.
2: Good morning, John. Thank you very much.
1: Looks like uh, you and I are up on uh, Zoom for this conversation. Are you sitting in your office at uh, the, the George C. Marshall Center?
2: I am. I'm here in Garmisch-Partenkirchen, Germany. It's the foothills of the Alps. It's really beautiful near the Austrian border.
1: A little jealous. Uh, you're probably a little bit warmer than we are today. When I woke up this morning and left my house, it was minus 3 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> It's a little, little chilly here in Minnesota. Uh, Colonel, if I may, can you briefly tell us about the George C. Marshall European Center? What does that institution do to support American national security interests?
2: Sure. Thank you, John. Uh, the Marshall Center is actually one of six regional centers the Department of Defense has focused on different geographic parts of the world. There's one focused on Africa, um, one on Near East South Asia, one on the Asia-Pacific, one in the Western Hemisphere and a brand new one focused in on the Arctic, the Ted Stevens Center just opened up this last year in, in Anchorage. Um, the Marshall Center is the oldest of the six regional centers and it's the only one that's binational. It's a German and American partnership. 25% of our funding and our personnel come from Germany and the other three quarters are American. We have um, military and civilian and we have foreign nationals from a bunch of countries here as well. But our mission really is to educate, engage, and empower security partners to collectively affect regional, transnational, and global challenges. And so we have all sorts of things from resident courses to outreach events. We have a large alumni network, over 15,000 alumni over the last 30 years. It's our 30th year. Uh, We actually have more from Ukraine than anywhere else. And these alumni are not just military from Departments of Defense, but also Ministry of Foreign Affairs, from police, from intelligence agencies, and... um, other civilian government, and the goal is to have interoperability and a common understanding to collectively solve regional problems together. We have alumni from, gosh, I want to say, 185 countries around the world, and over 15,000 over the last 30 years.
1: Uh, how, how big is the center? I mean, how many? How big is the staff there?
2: We're about 260 people, all included.
1: Okay, and that's both the U.S. and German staff members or, or all across yes. uh, multinational or just U.S. and Germany? multinational.
2: We also have exchange professors here. We have um, some from Scotland, from Albania. We've got um, foreign exchange officers seconded here. We have an Italian carabinieri. We have a Swiss officer. We have a new Polish officer. We're getting one from Slovenia. And so it, it rotates around and um, there's a core academic faculty. that are the, sort of the PhDs and the experts in the various topics. And you have people that run the place. The center actually has four operational units. We have the, um, Uh, The College of International Security Studies, which is the main part people think about at the Marshall Center that runs most of the academic programs. We have the Partnership for Peace Consortium, PFPC, that's tied to NATO. They do a lot of outreach work with NATO countries, NATO members, mostly away games, if you will. We have the Partner Language Training Center Europe, which is here, that does uh, both English and Arabic and Farsi and Russian um, and French for NATO partners. And we have the Eurasian Foreign Area Officer Training Program, the FAO Training Program. This is the only center, you know, the U.S. Army, as you're familiar with, has foreign area officers that specialize in different parts of the world. They go through a year or two of training, plus grad school, plus language before they can go out to embassies and work out there. And this is the home of our Eurasian FAOs and Russians is a primary language for those folks. And you can imagine they're pretty busy these days.
1: Uh, so your your career path, excuse me, has been concentrated pretty pretty heavily on the African continent and you even taught politics and development uh, in sub-Saharan Africa at uh, the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Uh, as a foreign area officer, a FAO yourself, what was it about the Afri- African continent that so deeply interested you? Or, or, or was that just the, the Army chose you uh, to focus on Africa? <laughs> How did it work out?
2: That's, that's a great question because, you know, you can put your preference in the Army. The Army is going to tell you what they prefer for you. <laughs>
1: right. Um, in my ca- In my
2: case, I was lucky. I did choose Africa. Um, I became an African Theo back in 1999, so it was quite a while ago. This was before the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and at that time, it seemed like the most interesting, adventurous part of the world. Um, it's a very, very diverse part of the world. There are more than 54 countries. Um, I actually have some family history in Africa going way back. I had five generations in Zimbabwe. I had people back in the 1930s in East Africa and Kenya and Uganda and, and other parts, And when I was at West Point, I did this thing called Crossroads Africa. It's like a little mini Peace Corps thing where you go and you live in a village. And I lived in West Africa in the Gambia
1: Mm. for
2: a couple of months when you had no running water and you're pulling your water out of a well in the morning. And it was all very romantic when you're 19 years old. Now it would be difficult, but I had a very interesting experience and I sort of fell in love with the continent and um, it it just ended up that way. I I will say though about half the African foreign aid officers choose it and the other half are sent because it's a, it, it can be a tough part of the world to work. Um, Parts of it are lovely, but parts of it are very challenging, and a lot of the assignments are unaccompanied, which is hard on families. But I've been very lucky, and we really enjoyed it.
1: And we will have a, a, a lot to talk about today just in covering Southern Africa. Uh, somebody you know, uh, uh, Professor uh, Mark Dietz, has been on with me, talked a little bit about West Africa, a little bit about the kind of the Nile River Basin. Uh, he was actually the one who recommended uh, you for talking about Southern Africa as uh, somebody who's deeply familiar with uh with sub-saharan Africa in general. Uh but but Africa in in general, I mean, most people don't think about this but the scale of natural resources that are available on the African continent is extraordinary. Uh followed by the fact that it's such a diverse uh, place. Uh, different parts of the continent have such different politics and security issues, uh different wildlife, different uh flora and fauna, you know, a- across the whole region. All of it is something that's just iconic species uh, for the most part across uh, the plains areas of Africa. A lot of what we're going to talk about today has, you know, the big animals that we think about when we think about uh, Africa. So let's go ahead and start our discussion on Africa. You had direct leadership responsibilities as the senior defense official and the defense attache for a number of equatorial nations in Africa. Uh, Two quick questions for you. What exactly is a senior defense official? And then what lessons did you learn about the African continent from your many tours supporting military engagement with nations in that equatorial region of the continent? Before we start driving down to the southern part of the continent, let's think about the equatorial area a little bit. Sure. Thank you, John. If you don't
2: mind, i to go back one step. You mentioned just the sort of scale and diversity of Africa. I just want to remind our listeners, I mean, I'm sure you're probably quite informed about um Many of the different countries, but it's just unbelievably diverse. I mean you have 54 countries on a continent that's so enormous, Americans don't realize how big it can be. but um, inside the continent of Africa you can put all United States, you can put China, you can put Western Europe and India. It fits inside the continent of Africa. The Sahara Desert alone is the size of the continental United States. Um, and the diversity is hard to be as overestimated as well. In Cameroon alone, for example, there are 250 distinct ethno-linguistic groups that mm-hmm. truly feel different. And so it's hard for us to say Africa this or Africa that. Um, and so again, as we discuss these topics today, we'll have some generalizations and some things, but please don't let me come across as saying, uh, broad stroke brush, Africa this or Africa that. That's not the intention. And also I should just remind our readers, our listeners, excuse me, that I'm speaking on my own behalf here today. I don't, anything I say is my opinion, it does not reflect the US government, the army, the Marshall Center or anything else. Um, so a senior defense official and defense attache. In our government, We try to have a whole of government approach or an interagency approach to things, but in reality, we really don't. The National Security Council is probably the one place in Washington where all of our agencies and ministries get together, departments get together, and then out in the embassies as well. That's probably the second place. In between, we're rather stovepiped, unfortunately. And in the embassy, you have Department of State, of course. You almost always have Department of Defense. You sometimes have Department of Justice, sometimes Department of Commerce, depending if you're in a big country or a small country, but the senior defense official is the DOD person, could be Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, doesn't matter, who's been assigned to the country to advise the ambassador on defense-related issues, and they're responsible for all Department of Defense engagement in that country or those countries, so there's Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, National Guard, Reservists, etc., and you're sort of advising the ambassador and overseeing the portfolios and working with the various combatant commands. I'm sure you've covered this previously on your show, but in Africa, of course, it's AFRICOM, Africa command, which was stood up in 2008. So I was actually out there before AFRICOM existed. And so we fell under EUCOM, European Command. And we can talk about that later if you want to EUCOM to AFRICOM and how has it changed and is it relevant or not. Um, the priority missions in equatorial Africa where I spent most of my time were things like counterterrorism, counter-illicit trafficking, and that can be anything from drugs, guns, people. I mean, the smugglers are business people. They'll move whatever you want them to move. It can be gold, it can be weapons, it can be whatever. Uh, Peacekeeping operations, peace support operations. Unfortunately, the majority of those in the world are in Africa. And so we tend to train and equip many of the partners that are going there to try and deal with those problems. A lot of humanitarian assistance and disaster response, everything from evacuating embassies. I was part of about seven different embassy evacuations to dealing with the Ebola crisis when that that burst out. Always with the eye to protect American citizens, of course, and also help our partners protect their own people. A lot of civil military relation type things, including medical issues, uh, veterinary dental engagements. And then a big one for me was maritime safety and security, because there in the Gulf of Guinea There's a lot of oil and um, a lot of challenges. It could be energy security, counter piracy, maritime domain awareness. Um, providing resources for host nations to build their capacity to protect their own natural resources. I mean, I think $4 billion of illegal fishing a year in West Africa alone, that's money not going to the country's economy, um, developing infrastructure and doing training for human capital development. So those are the sort of things we worked on. As far as lessons learned, that's a great question. That's a semester long question because (laughs) I spent a a long time being an African FAO and I started out very energetic and young and idealistic and want to change the world and want to make a difference and i still feel that way but i'm a bit more jaded is too strong i'm a bit more realistic now after spending a long time out there because it's hard sometimes no matter how much you care and how much you try it's hard to solve somebody else's problem
1: we'll 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 refer to you as seasoned how's that seasoned
2: thank you yeah that's better (laughs) than cynical or jaded seasoned is good thank you but uh, i mean we look back at iraq and afghanistan and that's not the topic of today's show but it's you know, there are many places in the world where we're striving and we're not really making much progress. And it's hard to realize that when you're in the middle of it, you don't realize until after the fact, yeah. but I will say that, um, general lessons learned. We outsiders seldom understand the complexity and the context of the challenges in a local environment. We come in, we want to help. We don't really get it. And, uh, we throw money at the problem. It may or may not be partly effective. And, and then we leave uh, at the end of the day. We can't care more than our partners do. And sometimes our interests don't align. We assume we have a common interest. We go after the terrorists, we go after the whatever, and that may not be the biggest problem, or it might be seen differently from there. So I think if we had some positive lessons learned, it would be we should pursue mutual interests. Truly, where are the interests at stake in the host nation's benefit and our benefit and where we both see it the same way? We should leverage ongoing indigenous initiatives. That means it's their idea. And it's working and they're putting their money and their skin in the game and then all a little bit from the outside can help and go a long way as opposed to us coming in with a good idea we pay for it and they take it because it's free um i think establishing true partnerships is very important which means really listening and understanding and don't assume that the american way or the american institution, or approach is necessarily the most effective way but really truly partner and make progress together and i think it's important to ensure comprehensive coordination we can discuss this later in, in the segment But I think comprehensive means interagency among our interagency and among the host nation's interagency as well. Oftentimes that coordination on our side and their side is lacking, which makes policy implementation very challenging. I think international cooperation is very important. I mean, we're not the only ones trying to help a certain problem set. What are the Europeans doing? What are the various Europeans doing plus the EU? What are the Brazilians doing? What are the the Japanese doing, et cetera? We don't coordinate that very well. And one area we can talk about maybe later if you want is public-private partnership. Sometimes, you know, the US government, we lead with our military and our Department of State, and you can argue in, you know, who's in first, depending on which country you're in, but where's our economic lead, you know, and where are the private companies and what are they doing? And are they so private, they're not part of the US um, foreign policy system? Yes, kind of. Where other countries like China, we'll talk about later, aren't doing it that way. China is very much whole of government and there are opportunities for us to not direct our companies, what they should and shouldn't do, but to capitalize on things they're already doing. So for example, in maritime security, Who knows better what's going on in an offshore area where they're drilling for oil than the oil company? I mean, they have their own interests. They have their radar. They have their information. They really care about it. So why don't we work more closely with them and the host nation to really have a better sense of maritime domain awareness? A couple more things and I'll take a break here. Sorry. I would recommend we maintain a long-term institutional focus. These problems are complex and they're challenging and they're not going to be solved anytime soon. And so we want to rush in and have a quick fix or have a quick win and that's just not really realistic i think real successes come from long-term engagement over time changing institutions helping change the way people think and the way people learn the way people are trained and moving along together i think it's also to be realistic about the the goals we go after we cannot solve every crisis as americans we sort of feel obligated for one reason or another to go into every crisis and try and help try and solve the problem put the fire out bring assistance immediately And we tend to chase crises without having necessarily a long-term impact. And one last thing I'd say is the military is often the wrong tool for the job. And that's, again, (laughs) a pretty apparent lesson from recent experiences. But the military, the answer is, you know, yes, we can do it and we'll find a way. And we're we're usually truly well-intended people who try to solve problems, even if we're not the right ones to solve the problem for. And again, back to this topic of security, in most cases, in most African countries, the majority of security problems are internal. And internal security is not really a military thing. It's more of a policing thing yep. or a justice thing or a governance thing. And so the U.S. military may not be the right tool for that. So I'll, I'll pause there. I've gone on a bit long. I apologize.
1: No, that's fantastic. Uh, you're right. It's a, it's a semester-long discussion. Uh, the amount of things that you just covered in brief, uh, that that's a fantastic uh, summary, Colonel. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Colonel Matt Sousa, and we're discussing Southern Africa. Now, we're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. and You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so for the core of our discussions today, I'd like to focus on uh, the nations of Kenya and, and south from Kenya, basically, that, that line uh, to, to, to South Africa, the country of South Africa. And Colonel, Colonel, let's go ahead and begin with Kenya. What can you tell our listeners about Kenya? Maybe just a few minutes.
2: Sure. Um, one thing I recommend is people go to this website called the size.com. It's a pretty cool little map and it shows you the world and you can pick any country and then you can drag it across somewhere else. Because the way the globe is shaped, you get false ideas how big things are and how small other ones are. And so um, for perspective, Kenya is about the size of the southeastern United States. It's about 55 million people, which is sort of just a little bit less than California and New York together, our two most populous states. Um, Kenya is one of our more capable partners in the security realm. Definitely, it's a very important partner. I mean, they border South Sudan, they border Somalia. Uh, and that's one of the priorities for AFRICOM is trying to help you know bring peace and stability to Somalia and to fight terrorism with Al-Shabaab and whatnot. So Kenya is a very capable, competent partner in the counterterrorism world and in crisis response. And if you wanna learn more about what AFRICOM is doing in Kenya, you can go to africom.mil and it's pretty transparent and there's a lot of good information out there to see the kinds of exercises and engagements and things we do do with Kenya. Um, Kenya is a very strong economy. It's a regional leader for the East African community, um, mostly mostly very good things for that part of the world and a very close U.S. partner. However, some of the challenges inside Kenya, despite the economic growth and despite the capable military and professional institutions that exist, there are a lot of identity politics in Kenya. You probably saw the last couple of elections have been really quite rough. and. I think the theme of national identity is one worth considering as you look at any country in Africa. And it's a lens that's really important to understand because we assume as flag-waving Americans who celebrate July 4th that we're all American. And it's not always that way inside each country. And in my experience, some countries, when they're outside, they feel, for, I'll use Cameroon, for example, because we're not discussing that today, but I was there for almost five years. They really feel Cameroonian when they're outside Cameroon. But inside Cameroon, again, 250 distinct ethnolinguistic groups there are some fractures there that are more profound than others, and it's challenging. And, and the sense of national identity is not always there. And I'm not saying that Kenya lacks that completely. I'm just saying that identity politics can be very volatile. And we saw that in the last election, or sorry, two elections ago. And that's that's one of the concerns we have. But otherwise, they're a very strong partner, and people, Americans who haven't been to Africa or want to go to Africa, often imagine safari in Kenya or Tanzania as sort of the place to go, and, and they are lovely countries. And you will see the kind of things you imagine on the Serengeti Plain with the acacia trees and Mount Kilimanjaro in the background and the Swahili coast with the beautiful white sand and the crystal clear blue waters. But then you have the issue of Al-Shabaab and the refugees coming from Somalia and you have some insecurity along the coast in certain areas, so you do have to pay attention. Um, every year tourists do get caught up in things that, that are unpleasant because they didn't pay attention to the property state websites and they went a little bit too far off the beaten path in some of these places that are, that are near um, difficult areas.
1: Uh, That's a great summary of Kenya. I'm lucky enough to have been there myself. It is a wonderful uh, country. Uh, So just to the south of uh, Kenya is uh, Tanzania. Uh, I I have not been there, but I'm sure you probably have. I've heard that nation has a great economy and a a bit of a a beacon of stability in Africa. Is is that true?
2: It is. Again, it's a generalization because the truth is always more complex. It's a little bit bigger than Kenya, about 62 million people. A little bit bigger than california and new york in terms of population and it has the first woman president which is significant for a muslim um christian country in east africa they i don't think they had many women presidents and uh, she's the first one in tanzania for sure anyway um president hassan she took over after president maga died back in 2021 um T- kenya and tanzania are often lumped together because of the history and because of the the use of swahili but there are some key differences i mean kenya had been a british colony back in the day tanganyika was a german colony Um, And on independence, they pursued different paths. Kenya pursued a more capitalistic uh, economic development path and Tanzania pursued a more socialist one under President Nyerere, the first one, first president. And the socialist path did not work out very well for the economy, um, but it did work out very well for the sense of national identity that I mentioned. So in Tanzania, Swahili is the official language and really everybody speaks it. And from the beginning of independence, people were encouraged to move around the country based on jobs and intermarry between ethnic groups and you don't have the same ethnic identity challenges that I saw in, in Kenya. In fact, you have the opposite. You have people making ethnic jokes with each other in a nice way like we did in the States. <laughs> I was in South Dakota for seven years, and so it was Norwegians and Swedes joking about um, you know Ludafiska and Lefsa and everything else. And it was a fun thing in a nice way, you know, back when ethnic jokes could be not offensive, but anyway, my point is in Tanzania, they're at that level of ethnic integration, intermarriage and sense of national identity that is a strong base there that the population feels connected. The one exception is there's some challenges in Zanzibar, a beautiful, beautiful island off the coast, which is, if you have a chance to go, it's amazing. It's a mix of Arabic and Indian and African cultures and foods, and it's just absolutely gorgeous. White sands and crystal clear blue water. Um, But it's a majority Muslim part of the country, and there are different ethnic identities there, and it doesn't, it's not quite as well amalgamated into the mainland, and there are some challenges there during elections that that you'll see play out. But again, I think the sense of national identity is very important, because in my experience, there are very few countries in Africa, I would say a handful, that truly have a sense of national identity that will help them carry through the tough spots, whereas if you get into a crisis politically and you fall apart, over issues the ethnic fractures can really rupture quickly and tanzania is one of that one of those handful. Yeah.
1: And what about Burundi and Rwanda? Back in the 9 you know mid 1990s you and I were junior officers back then there was a great strife in those two nations uh, 900,000 tutsi's alone died in the genocide in Rwanda at the hands of their hutu countrymen. Uh, I know there's been a dedicated effort to heal the wounds of, Ro- of Rwanda since that time. Uh, what, do you, what, what can you tell us about the political, economic, and security situation today?
2: Sure. Rwanda and Burundi often get lumped together because they're side by side and they're very small. and They have similar histories and similar unfortunate genocide type um, events, but they are quite different. Burundi went socialist independence. Rwanda sort of went capitalist. Um, and Rwanda has done much better since their worst genocide than Burundi, had, than, than Burundi has done since they're still horrible, but not quite as bad as Rwanda's. Um, they're part of the Great Lakes region, and so their border is very volatile to eastern Congo. We'll discuss Congo later. But when you have all these spillovers and problems and crises and rebels, it makes it very challenging for small countries. These countries, Burundi and Rwanda, are each about the size of Maryland. Together, they're smaller than West Virginia, but they have a population about each one as big as Pennsylvania, our fifth biggest state. So population density and demographics is a factor. These, mm-hmm. these are small, very, very crowded country. Imagine all of Pennsylvania jammed into Maryland, side by side another one with all kinds of ethnic issues. Um, Demographics is another important thing. We didn't talk, um, well, we did a little bit early on about Africa in general and generalizations. One generalization you can say is Africa is a very young continent. There are about almost a billion Africans and it's the highest growth part of the world. The more than half of Africans are under age 18. And that kind of demographic (laughs) pressure is just, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, the, the youth bulge, huge potential for employment and education and growth, but also a huge potential for disaster if it's not well educated and employed and, and connected. And so you have these demographic pressures of youth bulge and lots of people in some small areas competing for different resources and that, that can be a challenge. I will say that President Kagame who came over with the military and helped end you know, the, the instability and the crisis and took over the country and has been elected several times since then, he's often criticized in the press for not being democratic enough. Um, but I will tell you a place like Rwanda, a place like Congo I think good governance, arguably, is more important than democracy and we can discuss that and academics will disagree and I can respect, you know, I can see both sides, but in a place like Rwanda, what President Kagame has done since the genocide is nothing short of a miracle, really. He sort of erased, tried to erase the sense of national identity splits between the minority and the majority. Um, And when when the colonists came in, the Belgians and the French, they sort of reinforced it a little bit to help divide and rule. And so is trying to undo years of that. And after a horrific, horrific genocide, where the whole country is probably in some kind of PTSD, to be honest, um, he's managed to do this quite well. And Rwanda's economy is growing. They have an IT hub. It's very, very clean. They recycle. It's often nicknamed the Switzerland of Central Africa. And it's not quite Switzerland, but it is remarkable what they've done in a relatively short time. And it has to do, you know, with the, the argument is that authoritarian regimes always look out for themselves. Well, you look at Singapore. Singapore is where it is today because it had a very authoritarian regime under Lee Kuan Yew. It wasn't democratic, but he did all the right things for his people and his country. And some people argue that Kagame is the Lee Kuan Yew of Rwanda. He's trying to, in in an authoritarian-ish kind of way, truly develop the country and get it to a place where they're very well developed and they have good education and they have a clean, safe way to live. Um, And so I think he's done a remarkable job.
1: That's a, that's a great summary. Uh, we have to take uh, just a short break, uh, commercial break, for our uh, sponsor. I'll be right back with you, uh, Colonel Sousa.
0: National you. Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at
1: CyberSecuritySummit.org. And, and we're back. Uh, Colonel Souza, let's shift over to the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, sometimes referred to as the DRC. Uh, that, that is a massive nation in Central Africa. Uh, some of the most pristine jungle that yet remains in Africa, but it's constantly under the threat of things like illegal logging, poaching, illegal mining, and other activities. Uh, because of the scale of the of the country, you know well well about that, having served in Angola. Uh, how, how do you see the situation in the DRC? Uh, wh- where are they at politically, economically, and from a security situation? Yeah,
2: thank you, John. The DRC really is a challenge. It's probably one of the most challenging parts of of Southern Africa. Um, not to include the Sahel. The Sahel is also challenging in its own way, but for different reasons. The DRC, again, talking about the scale of Africa as a continent, is enormous. The DRC itself is as big as the eastern half of the United States. It's as big as Western Europe in one country, um, and the capital is on one side of the country, and you literally cannot drive from west to east across the whole country in the wet season because there aren't enough good roads, and it gets too much jungle, and you just can't get there. You have to fly across the country. Um, It's in my opinion, again, off the record unofficial, I think it's actually ungovernable as it is right now, and it has been for a long time. It's a very, very rich country in terms of resources and potential, but very, very poor people because of war and mismanagement and colonialism and, and corruption, et cetera. The, the problems have been compounded from pre-independence until today. Uh, one example is in 1960, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, or Congo-Kinshasa, because it's Congo Brazzaville just next door, but Congo-Kinshasa, Uh, in 1960, and South Korea were on the same level in terms of measures of human development, GDP per capita, income, et cetera. And from 1960 to today, South Korea is one of the most advanced countries in the world in terms of every possible measure, education, infrastructure, IT, healthcare, life expectancy, et cetera. And unfortunately, tragically, the Congo is worse today now than it was in 1960. And so that's just, it's just, it's difficult. they also had one of the largest wars in Africa. They call it the African world war between 1998 and 2003. People don't even like know about it really, but there were about 5 million deaths, including those from disease and, and, um, other crises, 2 million displaced and 11 countries involved in this Africa's world war for five years in the Congo. And Americans don't really know much about it. Um, It's been consistently exploited. It's very, very wealthy in in resources, like I mentioned, things like coltan and cobalt and rare earth elements. The rare earth elements that are very important for the modern technology we use today. They're mostly in China and they're also in Congo and a few other places in the world. And it seems like um, people are always trying to exploit the resources for themselves, whereas their ethnic group, their part of the government or their external company or their external country even. And so Eastern Congo is right now there are probably 15 or more distinct rebel groups in Eastern Congo fighting for different things in different areas. A lot of it has to do with resource control. Part of it is tied to ethnic identity. A lot of it spills over the borders into Rwanda and Burundi and Uganda. And uh, it's just a very, very challenging place. I mean, you can only say it's a rich country to poor people for so long before you realize something has to be done. Uh, And it's very challenging. And again, back to my question earlier about what's more important, democracy or good governance? I was a bit skeptical. A few years back, we spent, I don't know, 400... I don't know, $400 million to help elections in the Congo be transparent, and we flew in election observers from the European Union and the U.S., and they had clear plastic ballot boxes and stuff to elect the guy who was already in charge. That money arguably could have gone somewhere else that maybe maybe is more useful for education or healthcare or otherwise, but it's hard to, it's hard to not be skeptical uh, in a country as challenging as the Congo, to be honest. I mean, there's always hope, and you hope things will get better, but it's just so large and so diverse and so many challenges compounded and the neighborhood is also tough. I mean, you have the Central African Republic to the north. You've got South Sudan to the north. You have Rwanda and Brunei to the east. You've got Congo to the west. And I, I wouldn't invest long-term in the Congo yet, unfortunately. Having said that, of course, there are amazing opportunities in a place that's so undeveloped. You just have to find a way to, to navigate the challenges of politics and corruption and, and um, I guess, overlapping interests that aren't as clear as they, as they should be
1: uh one of the things so one of the things i'd like to ask you about uh we know there's this thing called the african union uh we also know that there are interest areas across the african continent uh like the east african community that are seeking to try and stop these these conflicts that are going on uh do you know enough about either of those two things to to speak to them just for a couple of minutes yeah sure
2: i can try that thank you so the african union is meant to be kind of like the european union and there even some ideas back in the day of the united states of africa like united of america but those ideas are, are pretty far away the au is a functioning continental body and it does work quite well to convene all the countries together um, to try and solve issues that are at a continental level and they're actually working towards a, a free trade area uh, in the au which would be would be phenomenal and they're making some progress for that but they also have regional organizations like you mentioned africa is divided into five primary regions they have in the north was called the African Maghreb Union, the AMU, that's not very well functioning in part because of the dispute between Morocco and Western Sahara and Algeria, and then the challenge of Libya. They couldn't really agree, so it's one of the least functioning regional organizations. You've also got SADC, the Southern African Development Conference, which actually is pretty strong and working pretty well. And that includes um, Angola, South Africa, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Zambia, et cetera. You have the east african community eac which includes kenya tanzania rwanda ethiopia that's doing quite well other than the somalia challenge you have ecowas which is the economic community of west african states in west africa which is mostly francophone but you've also got nigeria and ghana in there and that's from senegal across to nigeria basically and you've got the central uh, ecas economic community of central african states which is in central africa includes the congo and ecas is also one of the weaker ones because its constituent states are having challenges, like both Congos, C-A-R, um, Chad, it's, it's, it's just challenging. It's hard to build a house if the bricks are crumbling. Yeah. So the regional communities that are that are put together with the countries that are doing the best economically, politically, stability-wise, will do better as a region. And you have seen uh, EAC and SADC actually do their own regional security, um, play their own roles in regional security, going out and doing things the UN has not. And one more comment on that, the African Union has sort of two models of regional security. One is the African standby force concept, where each of those five regions is supposed to have a standby force ready to go, on a almost notice where the AU wants them to go. And the standby forces, their credibility and preparedness and capability reflects the strength of each region. So the stronger regions have stronger forces, like SADC and ECOWAS, for example, and EAC. And then you also have another, another model where it's more a coalition of the willing. And it's not based on a region, it's based on who can go there now. And it's countries like Kenya and Rwanda um, who have their have their militaries in, in good shape and they're prepared to go. In fact, Rwanda is actually down involved in Mozambique right now hmm. for a whole different issue we can talk about later if you want with the Russians. Um, and the argument in the AU is should we have this regional structure where every region is supposed to have its own standby force ready to go or should we just go with who can actually do this? And that's called the African... Uh, ACIRC in French the African crisis Init- um I'm getting it wrong I'll have to google it for you but it's called ACIRC <laughs> ACIRC it's a different way of like coalition the willing think of it that rather than, rather than the regional one
1: and I bring that up as we're talking about the democratic republic of the congo because uh there are military forces from the uh from the East African Community that that group that have actually invested uh I- into the DRC to assist Congolese troops in dealing with some of those uh, security situations in in uh, eastern Uh, DRC. Uh, So there are collaborative efforts on the part of the countries in different parts of Africa to try and deal with these security situations. Uh, Is that that a fair way to state it?
2: Um, Yes, but it's actually very complex. Thanks for asking that question because so Rwanda was one of the 11 countries involved in that World War of Africa I mentioned in the Congo back in 98 to 2003. (laughs) And Rwanda is also involved in Eastern Congo now. And there are accusations between the two presidents of Rwanda and Congo that they're helping each other, they're not helping each other, they're undercutting each other. There are rebel groups that the Rwandans are allegedly supporting inside Congo that are detrimental to the Congo. There are rebel groups inside Congo that the Congolese are allegedly supporting that are countering Rwanda because all of the genociders fled Rwanda went to eastern Congo. And sometimes it's political, sometimes it's ethnic, and it's often about the mining concessions, who owns the mining concessions. A lot of the valuable minerals and gold and, and, and resources are exported out through Rwanda, uh, other countries in East Africa and not to the Congo. Um, and so, ah, gosh, good question. In an ideal world, the neighbors would come and help put the house fire out in someone's house. But some neighbors here are accused of stoking the flames in the fire because they're benefiting themselves, or they're going after their own agenda. And the Rwandans have been um, accused in the past of going after the genocidaires from the past, no matter where they are, cross borders and whatnot. And so you do see Rwandan influence in the Congo. Some of it is probably very positive, some of it maybe less so. And how it's seen depends on where you sit, if you're in Kinshasa or if you're in Kigali. So, again, I'm sorry, it's a semester-long question, (laughs) but um, that's just the reality on the ground.
1: So there are a significant number of of countries in Southern Africa that we could talk about. Uh, Unfortunately, we only have an hour-long show. uh, But I I would like to finish this uh, individual country discussion with South Africa. Uh, it's a nation with such a, an interesting background, but, but also a tragic past with apartheid. Uh, but it's emerged as a strong political leader within the African Union. What, what should people know about the economic, political, and security situation inside South, South Africa today?
2: Sure. Okay, thank you. So South Africa is about as big as Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, and Nebraska combined. It's pretty big. About sixteen million people. Again, about as big as California and Florida combined. Pretty large population. It's considered a rainbow nation because there are so many protections enshrined in the constitution for diversity in terms of ethnicity and also um, the gender orientation. It's a very avant-garde country by African standards because in some countries in Africa, it's still illegal if you're not heterosexual. Um, the press is often very hard on South Africa because of the challenges of the past and they are legitimate, legitimate deep challenges. I mean, the apartheid era was really pretty awful. And the fact that US supported that regime for a long time during the Cold War um, we haven't been forgiven for that yet in some circles and their memories are long and we Americans come in and we think oh I'm here to help and what can I do for you? And they think where were you? You know years ago when this happened And so I bring it up just because as we're going into this world of strategic competition with US and Russia and China And we want people to pick sides and be with us or against us uh, When we talk about the Cold War, the Cold War was not cold in Africa. The Cold War was very hot in Africa There were thousands of people killed and displaced um, And most African countries do not want to have to choose sides yeah. again So we should be careful of that paradigm, but back in South Africa, despite the naysayers and people are that are looking at the challenges of governance and corruption and whatnot. I'm actually really impressed. I think it's a very dynamic country. It's a very diverse economy during the apartheid years when they were under sanctions, they were sort of forced to develop their own indigenous industry. They have everything from from attack helicopters to yogurt and everything in between. They can make it all there. I think they're a real powerhouse, a potential for the continent of Africa, I think. And they have already. Their, their companies are expanding and crossing borders and they can bring development where they go. They tend to go to Anglophone countries because of the language, obviously, and, you know, even the challenges of the Congo. That's tough for any country. But a South African who's experienced working in Southern Africa is more likely to succeed and find the opportunities and the niches to make things work in these tough environments more than say an American or Western European who really has, has no sense. The president, Ramaphosa, he's a businessman. He's just been reelected for the second five year term. And um, I'm optimistic, I really am. I think I've been there quite a few times. It's a beautiful country, it reminds, parts of it reminds you of a cross between California or Europe, other parts of it are more challenging, but it's really beautiful. Um, security is an issue if you do travel there, crime is very, very high, unfortunately. But are, if you pay attention and follow the instructions and, and do reasonable things, you'll, you'll be fine. But in general, I'm optimistic. There are naysayers, but I think they're dwelling on too many of the negative things and for the region and everything's relative, given the context, I think there's great hope for South Africa.
1: And one of the things that I find really fascinating about South Africa is uh, back during the apartheid era, South Africa actually had a nuclear weapons program. They had a nuclear weapons capability, and they voluntarily gave that up as part of their national security calculation. And uh, even though the the expertise was essentially still there, the the new South Africa uh, that we have today has never pursued uh, rebuilding that program. Uh, which I think is a credit to the country, credit to the political leadership there. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Colonel Matt Sousa, and we're discussing Southern Africa. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at CybersecuritySummit.org. Uh, so, Colonel, let's get into a little bit of the, the great power competition that we know that exists out there today. Uh, we know China's been investing heavily on the African continent as part of their, glo- their, their Belt and Road Initiative, Uh, China provides development aid, and they build infrastructure in exchange for access to natural resources to feed the economic engine back in China itself. Uh, Among the nations across Southern Africa, this region that we're talking about today, what what concerns do you have regarding Chinese influence in the region?
2: That's another great semester-long question, John. Thank you for that. (laughs) I think um... I'll
1: give you five minutes. (laughs) Okay.
2: Okay. I think. We should not be alarmist about China and Africa, as we tend to do, and we should not see it as everything's being a competition. Um, I think there are some areas where our interests could actually, or the African interests, anyway, could be benefited from having Americans and Chinese in, in the country. Of course, they're a competitor economically, China versus the U.S., um, but I mentioned earlier a whole of government and how we try to do it. We talk about defense, diplomacy, and development, the three Ds, Department of State. USAID and Department of Defense working together, whole of government. That's actually not whole of government. That's three sixteenths of our departments and a whole bunch of agencies that are missing. Um, China actually does whole of government. They really do. And they can because they're authoritarian. They can direct parasitical companies to go places and they can have the interagency working together. And they're far more effective in engaging internationally with five-year plans, 10-year plans than we are with our constant changing back and forth. And our you know we, we're just not whole of government. We, we're very democratic. And it's a good thing, but it's hard to have a, coherent authoritarian strategy if you're not authoritarian um the critics of chinese engagement in africa say there are all these conditional loans being given there's all this corruption they're building poor quality roads they import their own laborers they don't leave anything good behind there are elements of truth there but it's not entirely the truth in my experience the chinese will build the kind of road you pay for so if you want to put 500 million dollars of roads in but the minister of transportation takes half you're going to get worse roads if you um you build a 20 ton capable road and you don't you let 30 ton trucks driving it and the roads are broken it's not the chinese road builders fault it's the it's the lack of enforcement if you don't have a maintenance plan um, and so I, i've seen chinese construction projects that are wonderful and really really top quality dams um, stadiums schools they built the african union headquarters for example um, they do a lot of really good things in some parts it's not it's not good but it's not categorically bad or categorically good and um, we are, as Americans, we're very far behind. We had the national security, the council expert for Africa come out and visit, and when I was in Angola, and he was looking at, okay, where are we right now? What are the Chinese done here? Where are we compared to them? And I told him, honestly, we're about 12 years and 60 billion with a B dollars behind China. And that's just in Angola. And Angola was sort of the eighth largest investment place for China at the time. Because China's had this very forward looking thing for, for many, many years, looking at the resources that are available. And they know that African countries don't have many Africans don't have huge budgets to pay for things, but they can pay for them in resources. So if you don't have the cash, why not pay for it in oil and oil futures or cobalt or, or, or whatever. And so it's not really, it's, it's not dishonest or stealing It's a, it's a way of paying for things. The country's happy to pay fixed oil price for 25 years or whatever to a country that needs it in exchange for roads and schools and what, and the Chinese are very good about advertising what they do and they do very large capital infrastructure projects that you can see readily. If we Americans go in and focus on democratization, this is going to sound a little bit cynical slash seasoned, and we do things <laughs> like civil society capacity building, yeah. it's hard to see that. You can see a road. You can see a dam. You can see a school. Um, and so, you know, arguably, they do things better than us in some ways. Final point is, for UN peacekeeping operations, we, we Americans pay the majority of that bill more than anybody else, followed by the Europeans and the Japanese. But we don't send any peacekeepers as part of the operations. We have observers, and we'll help other things, we don't ever put American units under blue helmets because it's just not our policy. The Chinese do. They're a very large peacekeeping contributor, and Africans see that. Now where do they go? They go places like Sudan. Why? Because they have investments there. And so it's not just going wherever the UN wants them, the whole of government approach, they'll send UN peacekeepers to go and secure areas where their companies are investing, guided by the government, supported by other programs. So it really is whole of government, and they're doing their best to secure their own investments which in the long term, I mean, if Africa has better roads and rails because of Belt and Road Initiative, is that a bad thing? I don't think it is. Maybe we should bring companies in to operate on those roads and on those rails and help run the ports and help American businesses come in. So, yes, they're competitor. But I think if we go about it like it's us versus them, you must choose them or choose us, we're going to set ourselves up for failure. We should capitalize in areas where we're really good. Business. America's really good at business. We're good at Governance. Uh, We're good at a lot of things. Let's go find our niches and build on what the Chinese are building for the African partners and not make the African partners choose.
1: Uh, That's great insight. How about about Russia? We know the Russian private military contractor, uh, the Wagner Group, uh, essentially a mercenary organization, is being hired by some African political leaders uh, to further secure their countries from threats, both real and perceived. Uh, Maybe sometimes that's opposition threats politically, but you know, it all, it all sort of uh, gets tamped down by, by Russia. Uh, what, what influence does Russia have across southern Africa? You mentioned Mozambique earlier. Maybe you could go into a little more detail about Mozambique and anywhere else that uh, concerns you. And, sure. and I should Thank just say you. that because you're at the George C. Marshall Center for, Euro, you know, European Center for Security Studies, you guys are dealing with the Russia-Ukraine situation every single day. So you have a little bit more insight into what, you know, the importance of understanding what Russia's involvement is in Africa. So, Sure.
2: Thank you. Yeah, in fact, we had a Southern Flank event just last week looking at the impact of the Ukraine war on Russia's engagement in Africa and the European engagement in Africa because, you know, it does change things. Um, Russia compared to China, for example, is minuscule economically. I mean, they don't even compare. We're minuscule compared to China and Africa. Um, but militarily, Russia is quite significant in certain parts of Africa and has been for a long time. I mentioned that the context and the history matters in Southern Africa during the Cold War, many of the regimes um, were propped up by the Soviets or propped up by us. And in Angola, for example, the Soviets, the Russians now propped up the regime that ended up winning the war and becoming the party in power. And so as an American, when I spent five years there, I really, you know, really do want to help, really do want to help develop things and strengthen our relationship. But most of the senior officers I worked with had been trained in Russia or trained in Cuba. 5,000 Cubans lost their lives fighting for Angola's freedom against South African apartheid mercenaries funded by our CIA. So those generals are still in charge, and they haven't forgotten that. There were – my Russian counterpart, Defense Attaché in Angola, when I first got there, was on his fifth tour in Angola. He'd been there (laughs) during the war three times as an advisor, was wounded twice in battle, fighting alongside his Angolan counterparts against American-funded mercenaries from South Africa. Um, And it's just very hard to be it's very hard to convince someone with a memory that, hey, it's all different now. Forget that. Forget that 40 years of war. You know, so we we Americans cannot be short sighted or short memory. We have to realize that context. Having said that, there are things that um, in, in the Sahel right now, you've seen a big, big displacement of France, relatively speaking, with Russia trying to move in and private military companies, the Wagner Group and other proxies are coming in. And the Africans don't necessarily want to have to choose. If they need so many things, why could they not have weapons from one country, training from another, uh, roads from another, et cetera. But we sort of feel forced to make them choose. Uh, And with Russia, it's more complicated because Russians are doing a lot of things that are malign. They're certainly doing uh, disinformation and misinformation campaigns in the Sahel, trying to undercut France. And you've seen in the last year, several military coups in countries like Niger, Burkina Faso in particular, Mali, (coughs) excuse me, turning more towards Russia. Well, why? in part because they come in is transactional. Um, no strings attached. If we give military aid, we have to do human rights vetting for Americans and Europeans and make sure that we don't train or equip anyone who's done bad things or any unit that might do bad things. And of course, that's a, that's a good thing in general. We don't want to arm people that are going to harm civilians or take it out in their own population or whatever. But the Russians don't ask those questions. You want weapons? How many weapons? Where do you want them? They'll deliver them. And sometimes the Wagner group arguably will do things in exchange for mining concessions. So again, you don't have a lot of money. We'll give you control of this mine, and Russians are very good at mining. So Russia, unlike China, doesn't have the same level of investment in Africa, but they're very big in certain niche areas, and mining is one of them. They're very, very big in mining, and they're very good at that. And so maybe they could exchange mining concessions in terms of security. Another thing is that a lot of the African, many governments in Africa, not a lot, I should say that, many governments in Africa are tend towards authoritarian, and they need regime protection as much as anything else. And so the Russians also have an authoritarian type government and they're good on regime protection. And these guys are offering that. And that's not what the U.S. military, we're not there to protect the regime. We're there to help promote democracy and and development and stability and peace and whatnot. Um, Another thing in Southern Africa, especially um, the NATO intervention in Libya in 2011, it's hard to understate the impact of that. We think on the outside, you know, the Western world, it was a good thing. We toppled Gaddafi and helped. You know, stabilize Libya. Well, Libya is not stable. Libya is completely destroyed. The Africans in general, we discussed this last week, not one country I know in Africa thinks it was a good idea to have gone to Libya, top of Qaddafi, and leave a big, complete mess there. Because Qaddafi, like him or or hate him, he was stabilizing the country. He was putting down Islamic revolutions. And he was, um, he had some pan-African ideas that weren't ever going to go anywhere, but it's worse now in and around Libya because of that. And south of there, in the Sahel, you can argue you can see a direct effect on the coup in Mali and all these thousands of arms and men and things that just flooded south after Libya, after Gaddafi was toppled with the NATO intervention. And so Russia doesn't have to use misinformation. They can just sort of point to that. And this is this is what NATO can do for you. Or we can come <laughs> in and help you with your problem.
1: That's a great, <laughs> great commentary. So, so, uh, Colonel Susi, we have about six minutes left. Uh, a couple of quick questions for you. First, uh, you know, having served as the senior defense official and defense attache in uh, a number of countries in Africa, wh- what what are the opportunities that the U.S. has in southern Africa to to improve our relationships with those nations? Uh, where could American diplomats maximize our support for economic development, for instance, or security assistance? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And then I'll just follow it up because maybe you can wrap it all up together they did, President Biden just hosted uh, many of the, uh, of the African countries uh, in Washington, D.C. for an Africa summit. Uh, most of the nation sent a delegate. Uh, what are the early indicators uh, from that summit that, y- that you've seen from press coverage and, and from your, your, your communications lines that you have back into Africa? Was it a successful summit?
2: Thank you, John. I think, honestly, it's too soon to tell. Here we are. It was the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit in D.C. just last week, I believe, almost 49 countries came, which is a lot out of 54. And I think it's the second time we've done that in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. Now, China does this more regularly than we do, and they get great turnout as well. So before we pat ourselves on our back, we should keep in mind the context. We're not the only ones doing this. Even Russia did the same thing and had a good turnout as well. So these African leaders don't want to choose America or China or Russia. They want to say yes to all. Like I said, we need guns, we need roads, and we need we need business. That's a generalization. But um I think you mentioned about the economic aspects. It's very important. We talk about in national security the different elements of national power. They have the dime academy am sure, you, heard the, you know, defense, um, information. I'm sorry, diplomacy, information, military, and economics. And we tend to lead with diplomacy and military. I and mean, economics is is not really our leading edge, and, and it should be. I would argue if we do anything as a country, we should promote more economic engagement. That's our greatest strength. We have great businesses. So in all of our engagement, where is where is the um, Department of Commerce? Where is the U.S. trade representative? Where is the opic uh, the Export-Import Bank? Well, on that note, there's a new program called Prosper Africa, and you can go to prosperafrica.gov.gov and learn about it. But this is a topic at the U.S. Africa Leaders Summit, We're intentionally trying to lead more with economics now and looking back at and reflecting on years of security cooperation and military engagement and sort of... Maybe maybe wondering how effective it has been or or it is and look at leading with the economy. I think Prosper Africa is a good idea. It's intended to increase trade and investment between the U.S. and Africa and to promote business deals, looking for deals to help American companies and also help African um, companies develop. I'm a proponent of trade, not aid within reason. I mean, aid is necessary in refugee camps or crisis situations and whatnot. People are truly desperate. They need food, they need water, they need shelter. But that's not going to give you long term economic growth. Private enterprise will. Enabling trade, enabling, empowering African entrepreneurs with good ideas to develop things and sell things, value-added processing. Why export the mangoes from a country to go to Europe to make juice and sell it back at the country for twice the price? Why not value-add the processing there? So I think that Prosper Africa is a a good idea. There's also a a move on the U.S. side, which is unique to us that China and Russia cannot do. It's to increase diaspora engagement. Mm. We have a very large African diaspora in America, um, and there's a new thing, it's called the President's Advisory Council on African Diaspora Engagement, P-A-C-A-D-E. It's brand new, too soon to tell, but I did work for an ambassador in Angola who came back to Texas. We had a lot of Angolans in Texas because of the ExxonMobil connection and the oil and whatnot, and she called all the Angolan, she invited all the Angolan diaspora in, I think it was Houston, to come to an event. It was really powerful to see how successful and hardworking and industrious and plugged in these African Angolan diaspora were in Houston, and they wanted to do more for their country. So that's an advantage we have as Americans. They don't have in China or Russia. If we can leverage and and enable our African diaspora, who are successful and educated and doing really well in America to bring those business ties back to African countries, that may be a, a, something we can do that's very positive and optimistic about that. And the final thing is this new thing called the U.S. Global Fragility Act, relatively new, less than a couple of years old. And that's fundamentally a paradigm shift in looking at how we engage other countries for security assistance and conflict resolution peace etc and is trying to de-emphasize the military aspect and emphasize other interagency things looking at taking 10-year plans having an interagency approach choosing priority countries and focusing on civilian engagement again it's much easier said than done because these problems are very very complex but the idea i think is good and not just chase a crisis with the military put out the fire and hope for the best
1: that 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 that's a that's a great commentary there colonel susa i i'll just echo uh, we early this year we had uh rana forohar uh, who's a uh reporter for the uh, financial times and she has been uh, in pre previous to doing all the financial times economic reporting uh she spent some time working on uh, national and international security affairs And one of the things she said, one of the points she tried to make is we we in America have to rethink our understanding of the importance of economics, because economic security is national security. (laughs) And the more we do in the way of trade and foreign direct investment and things like that, where we're reaching out to countries around the world to help them build their economies, because she said just the same thing you just said, that's one of the great strengths that America has is we're really good at business, Uh, that we can deliver an awful lot of support to other countries around the world to develop through economic means rather than just through diplomacy, and certainly uh, leading with the military is, is not, a great, not a great approach. In fact, two weeks from now, we'll have uh, Elizabeth Shackelford on the show, and uh, she's been a big advocate talking about the fact that since uh, 9-11, the United States, we've sort of militarized our foreign policy, which is not necessarily a good thing. In some cases, maybe, but overall, it has not been a good thing. Uh, sadly, uh, Colonel Susu, we've come to the end of today's edition of National Security This Week. Uh, Thank you so much for taking time from the end of your busy day out there in uh, Germany and uh, Garmisch-Partenkirchen to to speak with us today. Uh, Are there any other resources you'd recommend to our listeners so they can learn a little bit more about Southern Africa?
2: Uh, Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. First of all, I really appreciate this opportunity to chat with you, and um, uh, thank you for your time. Um, I'd recommend BBC News is better than most American news channels for coverage of Africa in English. The French have an equivalent RFI if you're a French speaker. The Economist is pretty good in general for trends. Um, And there's one called the Africa report that I use quite regularly online. It's it's a paid one, but it's got some pretty good um, inside scoop stuff from African journalists that are reliable and objective.
1: I would add to that uh, Al Jazeera. Uh, I've seen Al Jazeera coverage and it's excellent coverage across much of the world, obviously, but uh, Africa in particular, they cover stories that that most of the Western media doesn't pay attention to. Uh, So Colonel Matsusa, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I would like to wish you a, a very merry holiday coming up. I know you have uh, family in town, and you'd probably like to get uh, get home to spend some time with them over the holidays.
2: Thank you, John. Happy holidays to you as well and to all your listeners. All right. Uh,
1: and that uh, just about closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. Uh, for those of you who enjoy the many educational specials on PBS, there's a new show preparing to, premiering tonight. It's called The Letter, A Message to the Earth, and it's about uh, Pope Francis's missive uh, called the Laudato Si, which some people may recall. He called on all people around the world to take care of planet Earth. Uh, Our guest today, Matt Sousa, is uh, very familiar with uh, some of the things that are taking place all across Africa. Uh, Before we got on the air, he mentioned a little bit about uh, some of his interests in that. And I uh, applaud him for being a a fellow military officer, a fellow service academy grad, and being an advocate for the Earth. Uh, From what I've seen, it's going to be a fantastic show tonight on uh, PBS and worth your time to watch. Uh, That closes uh, National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Have a great finished week, everybody, and a truly wonderful holiday, regardless of which one you observe. Take care.
0: You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit, Check their website, cybersecurity for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.